I basically uh, found uh, Creating Wealth uh, podcast by searching uh, iTunes, and immediately I resonated with your message. You know, the great return on investment, significant re significant reduction in taxes, uh, steady income that could eventually replace my corporate job income. Um, also, what I found very powerful is along with that message, I was impressed by the high caliber of your guests. And I remember listening to economists, investors, lawyers, authors, uh, basically people who could present their expertise and allow me to judge their response uh, against your message. So as an example, when you talk about inflation, your, your, your uh, ideas about inflation going up over the next few years, I could vet that message against your guests and, and be sure that what you were saying made sense. And that was very powerful to me. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1187-1187. This is Jason Hartman. Thank you so much for joining me today as I'm coming to you from my home. I am back home on the Treasure Coast in Florida, and uh, it is uh, a day where a storm is about to begin. It's nice to be back in the good old US of A. You know, I love to travel. You probably gathered that by now. I'm at uh, 83 countries and counting, and uh, the trip to China and South Korea over the last uh, two and a half weeks was uh, amazing in so many ways. And I promised last week, as I was uh, reporting to you from Hong Kong, or maybe it was Shanghai, I can't remember, I think it was Hong Kong, that I would share a couple of excerpts from Kyle Bass's speech. It is really interesting and enlightening because as goes the U.S., so goes the world. As goes China, so goes the world <laughs> to some extent as well. It's the second largest economy on earth, a huge consumer of resources, and you know that I am a big proponent of packaged commodities investing. And as such, uh, I think you'll find this interesting. These crazy, crazy real estate prices, just a whole whole bunch of things to consider in here. So um, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's kind of dive into a couple of excerpts from this talk and uh, dissect it a little bit. And here is Kyle Bass. They purport to have, to have an economy that's 15% of global GDP. When you look at cross-border currency settlement, they don't even represent 1% of cross-border currency settlement. So, we so what he's talking about is he's talking about China uh, that claims to have 15% of global GDP in terms of the size of their economy. But when you look at the way the cross-border currency transactions are settled, there is really very little activity. So how reliable are China's statistics and their statements about the size of their participation in the global economy. Kind of take their word for their domestic RMB based economy converted back at a rate that they stipulate as the rate. 
And we give them credit for being 15% of global GDP. Uh, for the last six or seven years, our work has basically shown that China is desperately short of U.S. dollars. They run their own economy where they have uh, RMB, where they control the printing press, and they've printed more money than any, any economy in the, in the history of the world is printed domestically. So they run the printing press, they run the police, right? They run the narrative, and they also control the price level domestically of everything except really their real estate. So they can control their own economy, but what they can't control uh, are their dollar reserves. And I think Roger was getting to the point that uh, uh, the Chinese companies list in Hong Kong uh, primarily uh, and raise money uh, in both Hong Kong, Europe, and the U.S. They raise dollars primarily. They're so desperately short dollars, and that's starting to really show itself. And, and to Roger's point, they're borrowing so many dollars. Uh, he was mentioning that we're headed to a trillion. In fact, Chinese corporate borrowing in dollars has already eclipsed a trillion dollars last year. It's gone to about $1.1 And the inclusion of the MSCI, as you saw the articles in the Wall Street Journal, saying that China pressured MSCI with all the pressure they could put on uh, put on them to get their, their representative weightings increased. Now, MSCI is a ratings agency. What is so interesting about what Kyle is saying is that, you know, for all of the doomsayers and all of the people, and listen, years ago, if you've been following my work for the last 15 years or so, I used to be one of these people. So I know the thinking. I was very much engaged in the idea for a short time, admittedly, thankfully, at least a short time. Uh, maybe not admittedly, but thankfully is the right word. I was kind of going down this path where I was believing all the doomsayers about the dollar and the dollar is going to lose the reserve currency status and all of that stuff. Well, I quickly snapped out of my uh, delusional thinking, but there are a lot of those doom and gloomers out there, Peter Schiff all the rest, that crowd, and the gold bugs and so forth, and now the cryptocurrency bugs. And I just don't think that's going to happen. You can hear, you know, right here, that these Chinese companies and Chinese banks especially, they're just dying to get their hands on more U.S. dollars. Remember, the dollar is likely the most important product the U.S. exports. I know. You might think, well, Ford exports their cars, right? Not, not as much as some of the foreign automakers export their cars, but, you know, our companies export. But there is definitely a current account uh, deficit in our import-export, right? They call that the current accounts uh, deficit. So we don't export as much in terms of goods, but we sure do export a lot of dollars. And the whole world... The entire planet still, you know, regardless of, of those doomsayers out there, they love getting their hands on the dollar. And they need the dollar because the dollar is the settlement vehicle for all international transactions. It is the reserve currency. Maybe it won't be that way forever. None of us really know. But for now and for the foreseeable future, in fact, I would argue as long as the U.S. wants to keep it that way, because the dollar may not be backed by gold, but again, it is backed by the largest military force in world history. So uh, dollars, they're in and they're not going anywhere anytime soon, if you ask me. But, you know, we'll see what the future holds which is happening now, they're actually going from 5% weighting to a 20% weighting, which is forcing U.S. retirees uh, that index to these things. Uh, all of our money is going into companies that actually don't have big four auditors. They actually don't allow audits. 
they file uh, glossy financial statements uh, or, or annual reports. I don't mean to go off on a rant here, but I think it's important to understand exactly where China is and what we take for granted, I think, in financial reporting. Um, one of the other issues that you brought up, Roger, was... So in China, it's even more opaque. You know, it's bad enough in the U.S., right? But even more opaque there in terms of their reporting from their companies. Instead of having audits, they have nice, glossy financial reports, right? <laughs> so, or annual reports, same thing. Not the standard that we have in the U.S. Basically, the primary and secondary sanctions. As these sanctions on Iran go into place, all of the companies that do business with the Iranian National Oil Company and the Iranian National Shipping Company and everyone that's listed in the primary sanctions uh, are secondarily sanctionable. And that is up to the United States government to go ahead and, and sanction those secondary entities. But you think about one thing that we can do, I think, in this with this organization, I think we can also, let's say, issue edicts as far as what the U.S. can do uh, as action items. And one thing we can do is the, uh, you know, all pensions and endowments run under uh, an IRS exemption, a tax exemption. And so um, if the IRS issued guidance that said, uh, you're not allowed to invest in primary sanctioned entities, period, it's against the law. And if an entity is secondarily sanctionable or with it, what we deem to be secondary sanctionable, continuing to do business with primary sanction companies, we should just make them, uh, we should force divestment. If you wanna keep your tax exemption, you're not allowed to invest in these things. That's trillions of dollars. It's something easy for our uh, country to do. So, you know, he's going off on a bit of a tangent uh, and, you know, hey, I go off on tangents all the time. So here's one, just some food for thought, not a deep talk about it. But let me tell you, a lot of these endowments, uh, you know, by some of the most prestigious institutions in the country, in the U.S., right? And maybe around the world, I don't know, but in the U.S. at least. And I'm not picking any one name. I'm just throwing this out there as an example. But say Harvard University or Yale or any of these huge endowment funds. And I, I'm not specifically pointing them out. I'm just giving that as a kind of general example. They are invested in all sorts of sleazy things, okay? And it's very opaque. You know, people don't know. They don't know how socially responsible or not those investments are. And here he's talking about how the sanctions work against these foreign governments like Iran, North Korea, etc. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of interesting. Like, if you want to solve the problem, just say, look, if you're going to do this stuff, if you're going to invest your money there, then you're going to lose tax benefits. And that would solve the problem probably uh, very easily. Something, uh, I chair the uh, risk committee, the largest public endowment in the U.S., University of Texas, and we implemented that policy last year. And so that should happen, uh, that should be a forced happening, I think, from, from the perspective of the IRS. Comment real quickly on something uh, Gordon said, you know, he said the strongest economy wins, and I think that's exactly true. And Roger proved through working with the Saudis that you could pump enough oil to get oil to $10 and destroy the Russians. And uh, for that, we all thank you. Uh, Roger, but I think looking forward to China. So you might remember uh, when I had, and I cannot remember the guest name, but he talked about how oil could end up at $3 a barrel, incredibly cheap oil, right? And how, uh, of course, 
countries use this as a weapon against each other, right? Increase the supply, collapse the market in terms of price. And uh, hey, you know, that's what, when that's done, it's a punishment against uh, countries like Venezuela and Russia. So get the Saudis to pump enough oil. Um, and now, you know, the U.S. is exporting too, and the U.S. is very energy rich. Uh, I mean, what happened to all the peak oil theories and all the stuff from the 70s and all the doom and gloom and, you know, the world was going to go dark and, you know, all, none of that Malthusian stuff came true. It's the complete opposite that's happened. So that's just kind of an interesting note. But, you know, this ties in so much with real estate investing because when Kyle talks about the real estate prices in Hong Kong, and I touched on it last week, and we look at the largest consumer of those packaged commodities, those ingredients of all the houses that we invest in, the copper wire, the glass, the steel, the lumber, the concrete, the petroleum products, all of that stuff, all the energy it takes to build a house, right? All of that stuff. And, you know, most of you listening have uh, been investing with us, or, you know, most of you that have been investing with us, I should say, for many years, you know, you've purchased a lot of sort of working class housing stock. That's the housing stock that they have not been building uh, hardly at all coming out of the Great Recession in the last 10 years. And so think about it. All those commodities, all those ingredients of all your houses are so important. You got such a good deal on them. Even if you buy one today, you're still getting an incredible deal, even though prices have increased quite a bit since uh, the depths of the darkness of the Great Recession. So you're getting something and you control something that isn't being recreated. There's a huge shortage of that type of housing stock. So consider yourself very, very fortunate in that respect. You know, we talk about IP theft and they've stolen, whether you're looking at DOD reports or USTR reports to the president, they steal two to 300 billion a year of IP. So intellectual That's property. That's a pretty big number, right? I've never seen one public company file an 8K showing evidence of IP theft. And there's two to 300 billion of it a year. So I think we should force public companies that go complain to the government to file a case. All right. So I'm going to get, get off of that uh, rant because I really enjoyed those prior two speeches. A little bit of a tangent uh, there. Talking about Hong Kong is functionally relevant to the, the entire picture of what's going on in China. If you believe that China's desperately short dollars, Hong Kong is where China raises all of its dollars around the world. If you remember how Hong Kong's agreement came uh, with the U.S. and with Great Britain, with the U.S. it came in 1992 in the Hong Kong uh, U.S. Policy Act that uh, Mitch McConnell led uh, in the Senate. It got signed. Uh, and basically, we treat Hong Kong as its own sovereign, even though China technically uh, controls Hong Kong. As long as Hong Kong maintains its uh, democratic uh, electoral process, its autonomy and its economy, and its autonomy and its judiciary, we treat them as their own nation. And we have a free trade agreement with them. They're our most favored nation trading status. We don't have any of the tariffs that we uh, put on China or the any of the manner in which we deal with China from a trade perspective doesn't happen to Hong Kong as long as they maintain that autonomy. So I'm going to get into real So, I mean, that's so interesting because when we were there uh, last week, I, I just got back home yesterday, you know, we went in and out of Hong Kong twice coming in from mainland China, coming in from, I guess we came in from Guangzhou the first time, came in on the high-speed train, and then uh, went through immigration, which is a huge pain 
it's amazing that you're in the same country. You know, it's still all China, right, in theory, but not really. It's Hong Kong is a very much a separate entity, you know, very much of a hassle to immigrate from mainland China into Hong Kong. You know, uh, multiple checkpoints, talking to customs people. You have to go through the scanners where they have the infrared cameras that scan you to make sure you don't have a fever and you're not sick and you're not bringing any diseases in. Just the whole shebang. It's, it's a real hassle. I mean, it was easier to get back into the U.S. from mainland China than it was to go from mainland China to Hong Kong. And then we left for a day and took a day trip to Macau. And now that's a whole different thing as well. Same deal over again. Real big hassle. So uh, very much uh, separate. A quick financial picture of Hong Kong, and then I'm going to talk to you about the political side, because the financial picture of Hong Kong is, is, let's say, one of the worst in the world. Their banking sector is almost nine times their GDP. Their household leverage, when you look at private sector credit to GDP in Hong Kong, I have a... So in other words, the way I read that now, look, you know, I really simplify things because I think they're just a lot easier to understand. You know, you can talk in esoteric language, use lots of acronyms, blah, blah, blah. But when he says the banking sector is, what do you say, nine times the, you know, the, the GDP, right? The real GDP. And what that says to me is the smoke and mirrors economy is much bigger than the real economy. And eventually, that comes home to roost because what's real is real and what's fake is fake. And the financial world, the Wall Street economy versus the Main Street economy, one is real and one is a game of moving money, creating, quote, financial innovation, unquote, and moving it around and changing labels. And, you know, it's just a derivative of the real economy. That might be a good way to look at it. So, not much real economy going on, is what he's saying, in comparison to the banking economy. We'll have slides that I want to show you uh, really quickly. And I don't know which order they're in. All right, we'll talk here first. Hong Kong used to be the southern port for China. This is a ratio of Hong Kong's GDP in the numerator and China's GDP in the denominator. So this is what represented percentage of China's economic importance did Hong Kong used to represent. So in the mid-90s, it was as high as uh, almost 30%. And what you see is, is as China ascended the WTO and spent all the money they've spent building out their own southern port infrastructure and their trade infrastructure, Hong Kong's become much less economically relevant, but still very uh, financially relevant to China. It's really important to see how Hong Kong's economy has changed over time as China in, it did that investment in their port infrastructure. The blue bars are goods and mostly U.S. dollar-based goods. The red bars are services. So Hong Kong used to be a big exporter of goods and a big importer of services. And right around the financial crisis, uh, their, their economy flipped. And their economy flipped to today. They're actually a massive net U.S. dollar-based goods importer, and they're a services exporter. And they export to, to, to China, right? China, Hong Kong faces China for about 80% of their GDP. What's happened in Hong Kong in the last 10 years is something that will ha never happen again. So since they're pegged to our currency, the U.S. dollar, they import our rates. So when our rates went to zero in 2008, their largest trading partner went to the gas pedal, China. So what happened to Hong Kong real estate from 2008 to today is the largest real estate increase in world history. As you all know, um, Hong Kong real estate is the most expensive real estate in the world. It trades around $10,000 a square foot. Did you hear that? <laughs> wow. $10,000 
per square foot. Katie, bar the door, as the saying goes. That is insanity. That's absolutely nuts. Think about the houses you own, right? If you're one of our clients, uh, you probably paid, depending on, you know, if, if you purchased something recently, you probably paid somewhere between $65 and $150 per square foot for a property. And $150 would be on the outside. That'd be the high side, uh, you know, for uh, like a real class A type property through our network. Uh, so $10,000 per square foot. The largest real estate price expansion in world history. <laughs> That is absolutely incredible, incredible. Uh, and the reason being is it was free money for 10 years and their largest trading partner uh, was growing double digits. Now that's reversing. Household leverage when you get private sector credit to GDP in Hong Kong is now the highest in the world. So in other words, 100% of GDP. The other two lines here are the US and Japan. So, so in other words, 300% of GDP household credit. So people in Hong Kong are carrying a lot of debt. Their banking sector is now eight and a half times GDP. You guys remember Iceland, Ireland, Cyprus back when the European crisis was happening. Those dominoes fell in the order of the size of their banking system. Hong Kong's banking system is now as large as they were then. Fake economy versus real economy. Other fun fact, the two largest banks in Hong Kong, HSBC and Standard Chartered, are um, orphan children of British financial institutions that don't have any British depositors. So I think those, those banks are in a precarious position. Um, this is the key. So when you run a, when you run a currency peg uh, to the US, um, you import our rates. And then uh, to defend that peg, you have to have what we call excess reserves. And this is a busy chart, but let me just put it in perspective. In the last year, Hong Kong has spent 80% of its rainy day fund defending this peg to the US. And the only reason pegs work is you have synchronicity in economies. Well, now Hong Kong's economy is much more relevant uh, to, or let's say China's economy is much more relevant uh, to Hong Kong than the US. And they're spending a lot of their rainy day funds trying to maintain this, this peg that's existed for 36 years. So it's a subset of what's happening in China. China's um, house is on fire, and now Hong Kong might need a few fire engines from China, and we're not necess necessarily sure all of this doesn't revalue. To, to Gordon's point, and thinking back to the fall of the Soviet Union, it looks to us like, I don't want to say fraud, but let's say the, the, the disingenuous nature of the exchange rate between the RMB and the USD, given the fact that China is completely running out of dollars and raising dollars through Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is as levered as it is and running out of its own rainy day funds. If you have money invested in Asia, I would rethink that, and I'd rethink it very quickly. And I, if you have Hong Kong dollar deposits, you'd be foolish not to convert them into U.S. dollar deposits because the, you don't even... Okay, hey, we got to leave it at that and get to uh, the rest of our show, but that is scary. It is mind-boggling how imbalanced things look uh, from Kyle's talk, and uh, that's a very, very enlightening talk. So you can check it out. It's on YouTube. Just look up J. Kyle Bass's speech at cpdc conference 
And uh, this one is off Secure Freedom. Check it out. Uh, Really very enlightening. And uh, thanks to them for bringing that to us. Very, very interesting stuff for sure. Uh, Maybe we'll go over the rest of that talk uh, later this week. Just finish it up. But I I hope you found that absolutely as fascinating as I did and uh, pretty pretty mind-boggling. Truly, it is. Without further ado, let's get to the rest of our show today. Welcome to the May edition of the Mortgage Minutes. We're joined today by Graham, one of the lenders in the Jason Hartman Network. How are you doing today, Graham? I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me. So we're interested here. What is the interest rate you're seeing right now for, say, a $100,000 loan with good credit? Well, once again, it varies from one lender to the next. There's four factors that go into rate. One, of course, is your credit score. The other one is a percent of down payment, whether it be 20 or 25%. Typically, you'll get a better rate with 25. Then there's a loan amount adjustment. So the Fannie Mae adjustments start at 150, 125, 100, so forth. And then the lower you go, the worse the rate gets. And then, of course, the type of dwelling, whether it be a single family versus duplex. The pricing is a little more aggressive on the uh, the duplex. But as far as a range is concerned, I think we're still doing it in the, in the lower fives, probably anywhere between five and an, to five and an eighth, up to five and three eighths and five and a half. So I think we're still at a very good level of interest rate, which is kicking off some nice cash flows. And now what about, there are a lot of properties through the network that are in like the $80,000 range. What kind of, are the rates very different for that? Do they go not up a, a whole lot? Bit? I mean, between 180 and to 60, you're not going to see a whole lot of variance, maybe an eighth at best, if that, and that's a lot, okay? Where you get nailed is when you fall below 50. There's a huge adjustment there. And most lenders out there usually won't do loans below 50. I know some stop at even 175. We go down to 50. But uh, beyond that, it's just not cost effective. And plus, it's not favorable for the investor. Now, in your office, have you seen mortgage applications rising or falling in the past month or two? You know, it's interesting. I, I always stay consistent. I think if I was to give a general feel... It was a little soft there at the beginning, but I think we're starting to see it pick back up. Is that because the Fed is holding the rates? Maybe. I think that we're starting to see more inventory out there, and I think we're starting to see more and more people you know, get off the sidelines and say, okay, I'm tired of looking at my 401k statement. Now it's down to one-on-one. So they're starting to get in the game as, as new investors, and that's really, really good. So yeah, I think we're seeing some tick up in the applications. All right. And now the 10-year treasury, which is what most of our mortgage rates are tied to, has been inching up in the last month. Not a huge amount, but a little bit. What do you attribute that to? And what factors do you see impacting that and our potential mortgage rates for the next one to two months? I'm going to say, you know, the most of it is the inflationary figures. Unemployment is still good. They're up about 4.9% over the last report. I feel that we're probably going to see probably more than a couple of months. You know, the the feds met yesterday and of course, you know, Mr. Trump wants to keep things pretty level right now, which I think is an end result. They are going to be level. And I'm just looking at the last four months history here on the 10 year bond. And I I mean, I'll just read it four months ago. It's like 2.5 the next month, 2.5 the month after that 2.4. And then of course, 2.4, the lower, the higher the rate, so to speak. But uh, I think for the most part, we're going to see it pretty much level for the next three to four months, which is a good thing. People say it's going to stay level all year. But, you know, if I knew that, I'd have a crystal ball or at least I'd be living on Wall Street making more money. Now, I've heard some things. Obviously, the Fed at the end of last year said, hey, we're going to raise it four times. Now they've said, hey, we're going to keep it 
level for the year, but I've heard inklings of potentially them cutting rates. Now, if they cut rates, what impact do you think that would have on the treasury bond rates and how would that impact? What would that do for the confidence? Well, of course, the confidence will go up. I think that if we see any cuts whatsoever to, in layman's terms, come back to to as a net result on interest rates, probably no more than a quarter. I would love to say we can dip back in the fours, and we might. We really might. But for the most part right now, I think we're pretty stable. You know, I could get consumed with all kinds of different reports that I read from, you know, economists and, and, and so forth. And I usually like to go with trends. And the trend is good now. The trend has dropped. Okay. So we've we've seen it easing up a little bit. Not a whole lot. I mean, if you look at it on a graph, it's hardly noticeable at all. But, you know, like two weeks ago, you know, instead of the, the five to a five and a, and a half, we were probably at uh, probably five and a quarter to five and five eight. So we have seen it soften a little bit. And what tips would you give to anybody considering getting a mortgage within the next one to two months? Like, what would you say to those investors? Well, I am an investor. So the way I look at it is I've been dealing with investors for 20 years. And you talk to any of the seasoned guys out there, they'll tell you anything below 7% is a good rate on investment property. And guess what? That's still good today. We just been spoiled for the last eight, 10 years. So that's the problem. You know, we got down in the fours, hovered around there for, for several years, and then we kind of crept up to the fives. But for the most part, you know, if you take an eighth difference in rate, you know, we're talking seven, eight dollars difference in payment. Me as an investor, I don't really try to sit around and play guessing games. When I see that the rate is good and I see that the trend is good, I lock. Okay. I don't like to float. So I address this to all my customers. If you locked in on a rate today, would you be more upset if you didn't lock them in and they went down? Okay. So that that's just the way I play it. All right, Graham, thank you very much for your time today. All right, take care. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, heartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.